Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the pod, guys. And today I'm happy to welcome a certain film director called Michael Silber to the show. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to do this. Right. For those of you who don't know, Michael actually directed the recently released documentary film, Keeper of Time, which you may have seen promoted on various watch media outlets. If you guys have seen it, then I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did. Personally, I found it quite emotional, actually, um, that somebody would devote so much time and effort in a hobby that I personally find um, so much passion for. Um, and the film kind of highlighted how niche this hobby really is. And it surprised me how personal and almost protective I am about this, this hobby. But at the same time, I thought it was the perfect film to show friends and family that <laughs> after many years have never really understood my obsession with these things. Um, if you haven't seen it, then this is going to probably have some spoilers in it. So you've been warned. Um, have you have you guys seen it? Long, long, Jack? No, I've seen the trailer and I'm just thinking, do I watch it before I speak to Michael or do I watch it after? <laughs> so I was like sitting there for a while and watching you and Chester discuss this in the group chat. Then I was like, okay, I'll watch it after. I've seen it. I've, I've watched it um, over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, um, we were discussing it over the group chat that we have. And I think like, uh one of my first impressions was just how calming and therapeutic in a in a very weird way the movie was um when i was watching it just um i paid a lot of attention to background music and and um you know the type of you know asmr effects uh, i'm a big fan of those and i think um the movie is is yeah just very therapeutic and, and relaxing to watch I watched it in the evening, so maybe that's also why. Um, but yeah, I loved it. Thank you. <laughs> Great. But Michael, for those who haven't seen it, how would you describe the movie in your own words? And why should people watch mm. it? Keeper of Time is about, well, it explores uh, the wonderful world of mechanical watchmaking, um, in particular, uh, independent watchmaking. Um, At the same time, it explores the very notion of time, how we as humans experience time and our own mortality. Um, And it also, uh, you know, it um, explores the history of timekeeping since the dawn of mankind, really, um, all the way up to our current mechanical technology. So when you come up for this idea of this movie, you know, you mentioned a lot of factors there, a lot of things that you wanted to put in the movie. How did you come up with the idea of how you wanted to present a movie like this? Well, the whole idea started uh, four and a half, five years ago. I bought myself a nice watch for my birthday and I was 44 at the time. And I'd always worn a watch 
but quite frankly, I didn't know the difference between a quartz battery powered watch and a mechanical watch. Um, and it turns out, as we all know now, <laughs> that nicer watches are mechanical in nature, but I, I had no clue. And so I was looking to buy a Rolex. I ended up buying a Tudor uh, that just, I found out to be a more compelling brand for whatever reason. I, but um, yeah, once I learned about mechanical timekeeping, I just immediately became utterly fascinated and obsessed with it. I went down the horological rabbit hole and I just could not believe that I was 44 years old and had no idea that this wonderful world of horology and mechanical timekeeping and watches existed. And at the same time, I am a documentary film editor by trade and I had always been looking to make my own film, directing and producing a documentary. And I was looking for the right subject matter. And um, the two worlds collided and I was like, I wanna make a movie about horology and, and, and mechanical timekeeping. And that's how it all sort of began. Okay, Lon? Um, I know that it took you around four years, right? But um, I think you put something on the Kickstarter fund uh, website, right? So when you put that thing on, did you think it was gonna take four years or were you planning for maybe one year? <laughs> uh, I did not think it was gonna take four, four years. Um, I thought maybe two years. I think mm -hmm. when, I did, I, when I did the Kickstarter was October, 2018. And I think I put on there that it would be done in a year. Um, I think, I think if I had put four years, no one would have given any money, but, um, I certainly didn't think it was going to take that long. Um, but it does take that long as it turns out to make a film. And I'm glad I was able to take my time in making mm -hmm. it. Um, because I think some of the, some of the things that are in the film, I wouldn't have wouldn't have come to be if, if there were, we were rushed on deadlines. Um, mm -hmm. You know, early on, I knew the film wasn't going to just be about watches. Um, I wanted to profile these independent watchmakers, but I also, you know, when I looked down at my wrist and look at a watch, you know, the, the next question was to me, at least is what are these devices measuring and what mm -hmm. is time? And when I, thought of the, that's when I thought of the idea, well, if we could, if I could sort of interweave these profiles of these wonderful independent watchmakers with the concept, the more philosophical side of what time is, then I would really have a feature length film. Um, so that was always gonna be the movie, but just going back to taking the time, like in the edit room, when I was putting it together, um, you know, one of the components that ended up coming up was sort of, it, you know, the film ends up being a tribute to my father who, who, who passed away um, unexpectedly. Um, and um, that idea really came to fruition in the editing room. And I think if I was on a tight deadline to get this thing done in a year, um, that component would have never sort of happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the benefits of, of having the time to really experiment and explore and sort of ruminate on the footage and stuff like that. So, mm. 
Don't worry, Michael, because I think every Kickstarter project is delayed. So I think you're, <laughs> just, right. you're just being fashionable, right? You're just, you know, just doing what everyone else does, right? Let's let's put a year down, but we actually know it's four. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, exactly. or not, you know. Right? I mean, <laughs> we're just thankful it got produced. Come on. Yeah, let's put it this way. Everyone's lucky it didn't take eight years. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but since you, since you say, you know, you're a documentary, documentary film editor, like, would, you, would it be fair to say that movies is your like first passion in life? Yeah, I've always wanted to make movies uh, from a very young age, you know, um, and I've always have made movies, you know, from the age of, of seven. I remember, you know, my grandfather gave me his Super 8 film camera and, you know, watching movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and um, making my own little horror movies and all the way up through high school and then college and then I ultimately went to film school at Florida State University um, and moved to New York and really at that point fell in love with documentary filmmaking and editing and so I've been doing that for almost 20 years now um, and so but it's really exciting for me to have finally made my first uh, direct you know film where I'm directing and producing um so that's it's really exciting for me and what what you know when you got your first Tudor what was the thing that like captured your imagination in the watch you know there's many there's many reasons why people love watches what was it for you that really just hit the notes well like I said I I was you know not knowing much about watches and I I think this is true it's like when people think of a nice watch they think of a Rolex um, and so that's what I was going into getting. And then as I was doing research, um, I, I, I couldn't figure out why Rolex had a Submariner and Tudor, this brand Tudor had a Submariner that looked identical. And, um, you know, this was back in the, the, the seventies or whatnot, but doing research. And I was like, wait, how are they getting away with, with this, <laughs> having a Submariner and um, Bison and Rolex suing them about, you know, and then of course I realized that, you know, Tudor is a sister brand of Rolex and it was developed to have a more affordable option. Um, and, but with the same quality as a Rolex and something about that ethos really spoke to me that, um, yeah, that it was sort of a Rolex watch for the everyday person, you know, um, and I like that. And also then the history of the brand too, um, that these, you know, the Submariners were for the Marine National and the sort of the military history of, of Tudor. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, and at the time um, that the, the Black Bay, heritage line had just come out and that was really exciting and um i just thought aesthetically the watches were like super cool and yeah it was like a rolex but not a rolex and for me a lot cooler than a rolex and i, I still feel that way it's like every time i'm looking at rolex and i'm like hmm, i just think Tudor is i don't know it's just well i know what you mean like rolex is a bit like all oh, my Rolex fans are going to kill me, but like a bit <laughs> mass market, right? And Tudor just 
Like, I think anybody that wears a Tudor, you just feel, ah, oh, he could be a watch guy, right? Like, I think he went so, for a yeah. more discreet option. Um, it's fully, you know, design-wise, you know, still you have the traditional designs. has that utilitarian feel. Um, you just feel they bought the watch for the watch rather than, like, Rolex the brand, you know? Because it's, it's just so easy to get a Rolex, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, like, I, I think you're right. I think if you see somebody wearing a Tudor, yeah, to me it's like they're most likely into watches. Whereas anyone wearing, I think a it goes Ro better Rolex, as well with your like whole documentary video editor kind of profile. You know, <laughs> I can see you out there with your camera. You know, it looks good with this old Tudor on your on your. Uh, this yeah. is this is this isn't sponsored by Tudor, by the way. No, no, but, uh, <laughs> um. But yeah, I, I think I, I, I still think they, they um, sorry about that. They, I still think they're putting out like really interesting watches. Um, and um, yeah, I'm a big fan. I have a, a, a Tudor GMT I'm wearing and, a, and, and the Tudor Black Bay 36 I still have, but it was, but that was the watch that I bought. And I have a vintage Tudor um, Prince Oyster date jumbo, um, which is a really cool watch. Um, but yeah, every time I'm like, hmm, should I get her? I don't have a, I don't own a Rolex, but every, you know, every time I think about, should I get one? I'm like, wait, did, maybe Tudor has something that's cool. <laughs> um, I have a question. So earlier on, you said that, you know, uh, you really wanted to dedicate the film to, um, independent watchmakers. Um, so it's kind of a question within a question. First question is like, how did you come to the process of selecting and maybe in like inviting the independent watchmakers that were featured in your film? And second, while we're talking about, you know, watch purchases and, and, and whatnot, like after you made the film, do you have any incentive to like reach out to any of the watchmakers and, and get a watch from them? And if so, <laughs> which, which brand would you get it from? You can only have one. Well, to answer the first part of your question, what happened was when I was, like I said, going down the rabbit hole of horology, I discovered the Horological Society of New York. Um, they offer watchmaking classes to the public. And I took all of those where you take apart a watch movement and you put it back together. And at the time, uh, Nick Benusis was the president. He's now the um, executive director of the Horological Society of New York. And he really was the cornerstone of helping me find the personalities and the watchmakers um, in the film. And so he was, one, he was the first interview that I did, Nick. And uh, he was super passionate about the project and really believed in me and in the film. Um, and he reached out first to Francois Paul Jorn uh, mm. to see if he might be interested in participating. And lo and behold, he was. And so I went from I went from not knowing what a court, the difference between a quartz watch and a mechanical watch was mm. to interviewing Francois Paul Jorn within like seven months. Um, and so it was like zero to 100 in the wink of an eye. Um, so we did that first interview in, um, in New York. And once Francois Paul Jean was interviewed and on board, uh, we reached out to Max Booser, we reached out to Roger Smith, and they all came in. This is before the Kickstarter. And so um, 
they were all super supportive. I told them that I was doing a Kickstarter to raise the money for, for the rest of the filming. They all donated signed magazines and books and all kinds of things. And mm. the Kickstarter was very successful. And so that's, but those watchmakers, those independent watchmakers were chosen because I felt like they were all innovators. Mm-hmm. They weren't just watch. I, they're, they're not just watchmakers. First of all, they're all independent. Um, and secondly, they're all do their, their con- contributions to horology and watchmaking is, is innovation. You know, you look at Francois Paul Jorn and what he's done with, for, for one example, the resonance. I mean, that's a watch that um, is really pushing the boundaries, what can be done in a wristwatch uh, with, with that mechanism. And, um, and then you look at Roger Smith, who's a disciple of, of George Daniels, and he's dedicated his entire life to improving the mechanical timekeeper. He's taking that coaxial escapement that Daniels developed, and he's improved it tenfold, if not 20-fold. It's, it's a much more efficient machine, and he's obviously come into his own as, as one of the top watchmakers in the independent watchmakers in the world on on his own um and then of course max booser is totally out of the box i mean once i discovered his horological machines i was just like these were meant to be in a movie i mean they're it's pure they're so cinematic and they're theater yeah exactly you know we did the premiere and to see those watches you know on a 40 foot screen was amazing uh and so i just knew he and mbnf had to be filmed and then the kickstarter was great because it exposed the project early on to other people in the watch world uh one being john reardon and two being Eric Koo that came on board as executive producers during that time. And Eric Koo ultimately was the one that introduced me to uh, Philippe Dufour. And so that was huge, of course. And uh, that was a a wonderful experience. Um, Mm. And, you know, he's a living legend, right? Considered, widely considered the best watchmaker today. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going, you know, if, you know, I personally can't afford any one of these uh, watches uh, from any of these uh, watchmakers, but I think there's something about, listen, they all make incredible watches. There's something about the resonance watch to me, Jorn's watch that has this, mystery to it and this magic to it that I'm endlessly fascinated by. And so that's a watch that I would love to own. It was a real thrill to film it and Mm. yeah. Although I have to say this new chronograph that from MBNF that just came out is. Oh, that's sick. Incredible. (laughs) It it, it goes exactly with the theme of your movie, which is um, you know, we, we perceive time as so everyday to us that we don't even think about it. But then Max and his team and Alan, like they just try their hardest to re 
invent like a new language for telling time and and the yeah when 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 I first saw that watch in press photos you know it's it's very max because all his watches have a very distinct language but then I was reading the the bio of the watch you know they're trying to um explain how the mechanism mechanism worked and I was reading it and you know just couldn't really understand it because I of course without seeing how the watch worked you're trying to imagine it for yourself and I couldn't have imagined um how he was able to re-engineer the the split or the the chronograph so then it wasn't until I watched the video I was like oh my god um that's an entire new yeah language of its own um same as um, the Parmigiani Florier. Um, I don't know the, I think the GMT, yeah, that they released at uh, earlier this year. It was also, you know, using the Retropont, but then we know Retropont as the split, but then he used it as the GMT function, which, mm. you know, the mechanism is not new, but the way of interpretation and mm. the utilization is completely new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah that's what you know that's what i love about watches and horology and these watchmakers because you know it's sort of this archaic technology but then to have certain watchmakers pushing the boundaries of the technology and creating a brand new chronograph with new mechanisms that are you know that is endlessly fascinating. There's just something always new to learn and explore. And so that, you know, that's what I love about watches and horology. Mm. Um, I have to go back again to this whole thing about taking four years to produce this. So within the four years, right, obviously you couldn't hide the fact that you're interviewing all these people from, I guess, like friends and family and just the watch community in in general, right? So in that four years, were people constantly trying to get you to like put in a good word or try and get a piece from these people? I'm sorry, I'm not quite, I don't quite, I'm not sure Um, I understand the question. So obviously like all these watchmakers, like um, Roger Smith, or I would say any of them on the list, right? Mm-hmm. Are like rails for most people. Yeah. And it's almost, I would say, impossible to get a piece unless you wait for years, right? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So were people trying to get you to like put in a good word, help no. them like go off no. the list? No, no, not at all. I think okay. no one really, um, no one was contacting me about. Is it because you to... gave them a different email? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't, listen, I wouldn't have that power anyways, you know. Okay, then you've had it here. He doesn't have the power, so don't I don't have him. the power. <laughs> okay. You know, all, all the, all <laughs> You're the, gonna I be was... receiving emails from Lola yeah. soon, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Michael, that's not what you said before we came on air. <laughs> you said that's like, a... oh, yeah, right, 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 of course. You're the guy to sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is how I got on the show, is it then? <laughs> Listen, I will say this though: all the watchmakers that participated in this film, uh, I, you know, as I said before, they were all super supportive um, and forthcoming and generous with their time, and just super friendly. I think that you know, and I and I, I 
is this specific to this world of watchmaking? I think it might be. I mean, I just, they, they listen, like I said, I was so green when I started this. Um, they had no reason to believe in what I was doing. They didn't know me from a hole in the wall. And so for them to have the confidence and the belief in me in the film um, was extraordinary to me. Um, I, you know, it, it's, I'm, I'm forever grateful. Um, mm. But no, they did not give me first dibs on the waiting lists. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I have a question, which is, um, you know, you're doing this. You do start off green. You meet these amazing um, uh, watchmakers you and previous in, in an answer you said like how you know you love the storytelling side of watches as well you know you're getting more exposed more and more to these stories did it ever surprise you did you ever think like how come this whole world has remained untouched you know from a videography kind of aspect how come nobody has highlighted and brought these stories up because they are so enticing you know if presented in the right way there's a lot of material that is unique yeah for sure this was one of the reasons that i wanted to make the film is because i couldn't believe no one had uh, no one else had made a feature documentary presenting these watchmakers in this world of horology in 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 this way like you said i think you know i think people that are really entrenched in the watch world are familiar with these stories, you know, Roger Smith's and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I really wanted to present their personal stories and how they came into making watches. Again, um, woven with the concept of time and these more philosophical notions. Um, it was that really excited me. I mean, those are the ideas that excite me in cinema, these more existential um, ideas about our, our existence um, and our, our lives and our mortality and these sort of bigger themes. And so to, to, to be able to juxtapose that with these wonderful craftsmen and artisans that were making watches from scratch was really exciting for me. Um, but I don't know why, you know, I don't, I'm not sure why no one has tackled it before. Um, it was really surprising to me. Um, I, I, you know, I, maybe because it's really so damn hard to do. I mean, it was really, it's, it's challenging um, making a film independently like this. Um, um, how would you say the journey was like for you from starting from green to yeah. getting the movie out like how your emotional journey in actually doing this movie like what did you what did you go through um well like i said i didn't think it was going to take four years um so there was a lot of you know the first listen i was so enthusiastic and um excited about watches when i started this that was what really was my motivation and and uh, I had so much energy. And so doing the kicks, the, you know, doing the Kickstarter was a huge project to, you know, to, when you're trying to gross that amount of money, which ultimately was, like, I grossed about $116,000. I mean, that's a project unto itself. Um, so that's raising the money for just, for just the shooting. 
Um, and then once the money was in, it was great. Then it was just right away. Let's start booking flights and booking people for interviews and where we're going to go. We're going to go to Geneva. You know, when can Roger Smith do it? Um, and all of these things. And that was super fun and exciting. I was traveling around the world and it was a real adventure. And in the meantime, I'm still doing research about watches and, you know, uh, what is Francois Paul's backstory and Philippe Dufour. And, and so making the film really was my hands-on education um, into this world. Um, it was my schooling. Um, and so that sense, um, as the film progressed, I just kept learning and learning. And when you're learning from like Philippe Dufour <laughs> uh, about how, you know, some of these grand complications work, uh, it's a total thrill. Um, and so, you know, when I started, I wasn't very knowledgeable. And now having made the film, I'm, I feel like I'm very knowledgeable. Um, and certainly by the time we filmed with Dufour, I was, I was knowledgeable. Um, and, and was happy I was, because I could really, that day of filming with him and his, his workshop in the Valley de Joux was so special. Um, and I could really appreciate the fact that I was in the presence of a living legend. Um, and for him to just take us around his workshop and go through books and, and to volunteer to, to, you know, polish a screw sink with his bow and ebony wood and to do some engalage for us. Um, it was, it was wonderful. Mm. I think, I think it benefited you. Like the fact that you did actually approach this at the start, quite green, because a lot of these concepts that you put in, I, I personally really like those deeper concepts you put in. Like one of my favorites one is that how we see time um, actually is a limiting factor, you know, like, because we actually define time, you know, as a set time here rather than a constant flow. So there's, I really like those kind of aspects. I'm not sure if you're a seasoned watch collector, you may think like that because um, you've read so much material, you know what I mean? And you're already kind of all that material you're getting from everywhere else has already made up your mind while you were kind of exploring like, all the way there and i think you knitted the yeah the independent watchmakers because we're all watch lovers here you know that is clearly a big draw but then they, you know there's a part of the movie where you talk about like there's this couple like i don't know where they are in america but they, they got like clocks yeah a crap ton of clocks and then the guy was saying <laughs> you, you're not a proper clock collector until you have to reinforce your, your floor with concrete and i was like um you know that, that 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 nerdiness we all share is it it's it's almost bonding you know that the fact that someone is as crazy as you but i think that you knitted all of that coherently uh, there's a lot of elements to it and you've knitted it really well um yeah including those uh, really deep themes at the beginning where to be honest when i watched it i was like uh you know I look at the time, you know, I think everybody knows now when they look at anything video related, they're like, how long is this going to be? <laughs> yeah. Okay. 90 minutes. Okay. But then I didn't, I watched it straight through. I didn't like come back to it. So it held my interest. And I, and I also think there's not a lot um, of media out there that I haven't seen so, uh, regarding watches. So I was thinking like, 
eyes that but there was enough to keep me you know interested all the way through um my question for you is you know out of the whole experience which is the one memory that you will take away the one that really sticks out again i have to go back to philippe dufour um because again he's a living legend he's the greatest he's he's the goat of at least currently um and you know his workshop is so romantic tucked in the valley de Joux was winter time and him coming to his warm glowing workshop and he was so welcoming and forthcoming and generous like i said he literally took us i mean the workshop is not a big space necessarily but he took us around and was showing us books and pictures of watches that inspired him and to film him working at the bench um it was really really special um that is the day that i will always hold dear on, on this on this production when did you interview him you he was one of the later guests on? he was one of the later um i think i think it was winter because i saw snow winter it must have been i think it was february of 20 it must have been right before must have been the winter before covid yeah right. oh wow okay I so think. 2020 february 2020 2019 maybe 19 I don't know. It, you know, honestly, it's all, it's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was one of the later ones. Yeah. Were there any other watchmakers that you wanted on that just either wanted to stay private or didn't have the time? You know, in re- at the time, what I uh, an independent I would have loved to have a uh, one of these uh, Japanese independents. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, because the film is very Eurocentric, mm. um, which makes sense in a lot of ways. But I really think these Japanese artisans are really doing some incredible, interesting mm-hmm. work, and they have a whole different philosophy to what they bring to the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something I wish I could have incorporated into the film. But I honestly, I just didn't have the resources to go to Japan. Mm. Um, to, to pull that off um, part two part two yeah i was just part gonna two, say part yeah. two and then we're just gonna join for no reason <laughs> yeah. yeah i think I you do. should know, i think you should know now like the waiting list podcast is a permanent mainstay and the critical part in the asia watch collecting <laughs> hobby so I, I sincerely hope that that you know if anything you take away from this podcast that's it right so <laughs> right, yeah, should yeah. be yeah. i mean look I can do this ebony like wood like thing as well. You know, I can I'll put I'll put a white lab coat on. Like I can't grow any facial beard, but I can dye my top part like white. And then I can just keep going, you know? And you can get a pipe. Yeah, we're a pipe. Yeah. Well, I want you to know that if you ever wanted to have some Japanese context, these are the people who you reach out to. Like Daniel, who do you know from Japan? Please tell us. <laughs> What do you mean? Like, 
Well, listen, I'll just throw it out there because I, you know, if I ever make another film about a feature length film about watchmaking, I think that's where I'm sort of being drawn to is like, I would love to find the right uh, Japanese independent watchmaker and do a film all about that watchmaker. You know, the, you know, they would have to have um, a sort of life story that's, intriguing and compelling outside of just making the watches but that'd be something that really would 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 interest me um and how likely uh, is that like oh are you just teasing us or is that like or are you gonna hold your cards well well i'll throw well i'll throw this out there's anyone listening that wants to commission the film and pay for it pay pay for me to make it yeah um artificial hands coming up Uh, I'll make the film. So we just need financing. That's all. That's all it takes is me combined with money and we'll make the move. May I ask how much does it cost to, to make a film? This Keeper of Time costs, I think the final budget is landing in and around $300,000. Okay. But that's, you know, keeping in mind that I didn't pay myself to edit it. Mm. I didn't pay myself for directing or producing. So, um, Mm. so, but you know, that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's how we do independent movies here. Um, It was a passion project, right? So I was. Well, that's, that's a huge commitment and yeah, like hats off to you for doing it. I think the watch community is much better off, you know, having your movie out there. Thank you. Um, But going going back to you know Miss Brands, you know there's a certain Patek Philippe that's missing. <laughs> like, you know, like would you have gone back and put Patek Philippe in? You know, like kind of like the holy grail of, you know, all watch collectors. Well, I think what happened was is that the the historian that I wanted in the film telling the 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 history was always Michael Friedman, mm. who was in the film, and it just so happens. He is the head of complications at Audemars Piguet. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so um, sort of the deal was, well, let's talk we, to, to, <laughs> get, to get him in the film. It was let's let's talk about Audemars Piguet a little bit yeah. um, mm-hmm. and which we did. So when that happened, I don't think there was room to sort of go into Paddock Philippe. <laughs> even if Sorry. you had room yeah. even if you had room it's probably not a good yeah. idea <laughs> i think there's a couple of paddock watches in the film i think when william messina is showing some of his mm. watches yeah he had um, a 5070 on yeah the um and then there's a section where we... Jack. that is so you yeah, it was because because he he shows he shows us the spread and then you just see this really large like block of yellow gold on someone's wrist and then it's so distinctive because it's the largest Patek Philippe chronograph and then you see okay yellow gold blacked out okay that's a fifty seventy. See, this should be turned into a, a drinking game. You know, when you watch the movie, oh, you'd lo- we, you we'd know. lose. Like, <laughs> no point. Like Jack would win. Like. All our listeners would know Jack would win hands down. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just say, I'll just, it'd be one of those drinking games, right? I'll tell you right now where I'd be drinking anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's no point in playing right. the game. You know, play right. the game for fun. Just like True. the big, the victor's right there. Like waste of time. <laughs> but I have to say that's very impressive to get the reference. Uh, 
of that watch uh, just from uh, a it's, quick uh, shot. It's Jacqueline's uh, party trick that she normally pulls out in clubs and gets nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> right. Um, you know, aside from the uh, financing of the movie, what would you say the biggest challenge was in actually, you know, through the whole movie pr- uh, making process was? Biggest challenge, um, one of the biggest challenges was in the editing room. Uh, again, putting all of these different elements together in a seamless way, you know, we have, there's, you, you have the profiles of the watch, you know, we discussed this a little bit already. We have the profiles of the watchmakers. We have the more philosophical uh, ideas. Mm. And we also have this thread of the history of timekeeping. And so interweaving those three components where it feels seamless and organic to an audience um, is super challenging um, to pull off. And um, I think I did, um, but that, that, was, that was really, that's always the challenging part in the edit room because that's where the story, you take this raw footage and that's where the story is in a documentary film, at least mm. really honed. And that's where the writing takes place. Um, mm. So the, that was, I'd say the biggest challenge. And then the other challenge ultimately was um, releasing the film. You know, I'd always thought that I could release the film independently because it had this niche audience um, and I could target that. Um, but um it was so niche as it turns out that film festivals and streamers, mainstream streamers and that sort of thing weren't particularly interested in, in the film as mm. incredible as that sounds. Um, and COVID didn't help either. Um, festivals were taking 25 to 50% less content because everything was online. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm, distributing it myself, um, which is challenging. Mm. <laughs> you, know, um, you, know, you said you're like an editor, right? Like, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people, you know, through social media alone on, and YouTube, you know, a lot of people are doing self like editing and it's just a word that is like, yeah, all the ways it's, it's always thrown around, you know, like, but I think you might have answered it, but I just want you to clarify in your aspects, this is what, this is your bread and butter. This is what you do day in, day out, right? What makes a great editor? You know, where is the money when, you know, great editing, you see great editing? Well, in documentaries, um, it's, it's, it's the writing. It's, it's, let me make an analogy. In the film, there's some archival footage of George Daniels describing, um, he, basically what he says is that the watch should look like it dropped from the heavens that it in other words that it looks like it is always meant to look this way that no human hand has touched it um that it was just created by sort of the hand of god you know it's always existed this way and so that's how I think about editing too. When it's done really well and you, you don't even notice it, it's like the film has always existed. 
this way. Mm. It was meant to be this way. It's seamless. It's organic. You know, you mentioned you watched for 90 minutes and you lost track of time. You were just engrossed in it. That's when editing is really working. When it's not working, you start to ask yourself, why, 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 is, why are we talking about this? Why are, you know, why are we, mm. what, what does this have to do with anything? Um, and so um, it's really an invisible craft in that way um, when it's done well. Mm. Okay. Um, right. I have a quick comment. Um, I, like earlier on uh, at Daniel's last question, you said um, the difficulty of the film, which is like, um, I think you mentioned three parts. It was the story. It was the, I can't remember. It was the story. It was the promotion um, of it. Yeah, the commercial and the release of it. But then um, I, when I was watching it, and I am very interested in photography mm-hmm. and nature. And I know that the, cent- the stars of the show are these watchmakers. But I couldn't help but get sucked into the panoramic shots and mm-hmm. also the B-rolls you used mm-hmm. in, the, in the film. And now knowing that you edit it yourself, again, it's just like all these raw footage that you had access to. But like, I don't know how, how, what, what it was like because I only ever took one film class and it was photography, um, like heavy on photography. But, you know, if you were to ask me, like, what's the one shot that left a very big impression on me aside from the watchmakers and 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 the storytelling of people it was um when you were mentioning roger smith and then the first shot of his workshop with the lawn and then there was this grass cutter yeah and it was just going back and forth back and forth and it was just like trying to find its way trying to do his work and I can't remember the shot that was um that that was prior to it but then as soon as you mentioned roger smith you're like okay, now we're at his workshop. And you would assume, okay, you're at his workshop. The first shot is like inside the workshop, watchmakers film um, working away, which I believe is the second shot. But then you decided to do the first shot, exterior, lawn, and then there's this random grass cutter. And there's, it, there's just add, it just adds so much organic feeling and, and humanness to it. It's just like you're going behind the scenes and and it's nobody would pay attention to that but then you not only filmed it but you included it in the film so 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 my question is and by the way so it it, um left an impression on me it just felt so nice and again relaxing i think that was my first impression of the film so my question is you know of all these panoramic shots you know the stonehenge and whatever and the, the lawn like what, what made you include that shot of the lawn? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, we wanted to get an exterior of his workshop um, and he has this robotic little lawnmower that was, like you said, bouncing around, you know. Um, yeah, it was so like, it, sort of like, it looked little, like it didn't know what it was doing. Yeah, it's just like, it's, you know, the Roomba of grass cutters. Um, and I don't know. I just thought it it added some, it was it added some personality to the to the shot. I always like you know shots that have some sort of movement or something going on, and rather than 
just being it's spat brilliant. On, it's you know? brilliant. Um, and just had we you know we got lucky. It was running. We didn't turn it on. Um, yeah. It's funny though. That's like. I think John Reardon said this too. He said he really liked that shot. He's like, oh yeah, I'm, of course. Oh, of course. It, of it, course. Was, it was so funny in a way because you it mentioned funny, this yeah. great watchmaker and then it was just, and then nothing, right? And then it's like next up, Roger Smith. And then you expect the, the workshop and people working really quietly. And the first shot is this like this lawn thing. And then you cut to people working in the work. It's, it's brilliant. And it's so funny. I laughed when I when I when I saw yeah. that shot. Yeah, John so, Reardon was like, "Yeah, of course, of course, Roger has this little robot, <laughs> robot lawnmower in front of him. It's so like Wallace and Gromit. It's like yeah, it's, uh, uh, they, they um, do want to tell our audience. Fit his personality. So. Yes, I do want to tell our audience. You know, the whole movie isn't about a lawnmower. You know, like, <laughs> right, it, right, it isn't right. the highlight of the movie. Like clearly, it was for Jacqueline, but you know, it's you need to watch it for more eye. than the lawnmower. Yeah. But I will say this, it's like all of those, you know, all of those drone shots, those panoramic shots of flying into Prague, flying into Geneva, flying into the Valley de Jou. Like I really wanted the film to have this sort of travel log quality to it where we where we felt like we were going to these places. Um, and um, of course- The shot just, you had outside of Philippe Dufour's workshop. Oh yeah, that's oh, what, I was about God. to say that. That's oh my, my favorite God. shot because it it's just like a picture, like that. It's shot. like um, and it's like a smoke. house and a story to a uh, story um fairy tale. Yeah, right, yeah. right, yeah. It's so and romantic. My, yeah, my uh, cinematographer Ben Wolf. Uh, I had two cinematographers, Ben Wolf and Luke Geisbuehler, but Ben was on that shoot, mm -hmm. and he had that was a drone shot of sort of uh, he just sort of uh, tracked across that tree to reveal his little storybook house. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah that, that, um, that shot and uh le Brassou, you know yeah. that shot like with ap and then you talk about the um history of uh metallurgy mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and yeah. you get that feeling of metallurgy in the shot you know that, mm -hmm. that yeah. hard cold almost grit feeling just from the shot alone um i thought yeah that that shot and the philip dufour shot like outside that's why I remember the snow very clearly. Yeah, yeah, it was I think so There's even like smoke coming out of a chimney or something. It's just like yes, I see something so, you'd yeah. see at Christmas or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, I really wanted to capture sort of the environment um, where these people were working. And it's also why the interviews, um, I decided to shoot like wider frames for their sit down interviews where you could see the space their spaces mm -hmm. like you know uh Brittany nicole cox the antiquarian horologist she's has this incredible workshop with all these tools and machines and stuff so it was like for all the characters i wanted to sort of put them in their um scene and i just think it adds a lot of personality and you sort of mm -hmm. get who these people are um right away by seeing the environment that they work in or live in um so that was important who was asking the interview questions Oh, I was, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, like talking about that, um, you told me that when you were actually recording, that's the footage you used for Roger Smith, mm -hmm. when you're asking his questions and his story, that was also the first time you were hearing his story. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, you know, I had done, like I said, being green, I, I had done my research and I, of course, knew he was a disciple of George Daniels and I knew who George 
Daniels was, and I knew I was going to incorporate some George Daniels into the film. But I wasn't aware of like uh, Roger's story. And so when he tells the story of, you know, essentially spending 10 years developing a watch just to get an apprenticeship with George Daniels. Uh, you know, when I asked the question in the film, when he makes the first watch that took him a year and a half and he presents it to George Daniels and he sort of ends the story there. When I, I asked, well, what did he say? Uh, that's a genuine question. I had no idea. I just, I assumed that was the watch that got him the apprenticeship, but it turned out it wasn't. And so uh, we both started laughing in the footage. Uh, and then he goes on to tell the story that he spends another five years making another watch four times over and ultimately gets the approval from George Daniels. I, my, my jaw was on the floor. I, I just could not believe anybody <laughs> you, would... you thought 20 years being a documentary film editor was tough right? yeah <laughs> but I, yeah but it wasn't like i went and was editing films for 10 years <laughs> just to get an a, a apprenticeship yeah, right. but you yeah. know I, it yeah. just was blew my mind it still I does think he finishes that line with um and you don't find many people like that like yeah exactly anymore. and i'm like not anymore you don't no. find people like that full stop no he says i'm an oddball there's the, yeah, the, they don't, yeah. you know, they don't. Um, or at least if you are spending that time to go to like medical school or whatever to yeah, become a yeah. brain surgeon or something, yeah, yeah, you know, you're going to land, yeah. you're going to land a job as a brain surgeon, most yeah. likely. Um, yeah. But, and it was a huge inspiration, that story too, after I heard it uh, continuing the film, because, you know, he's an independent watchmaker. I'm an independent filmmaker and we're doing this on our own. So, for him to spend the 10 years to get an apprenticeship wow. to make a watch over the course of that years. Um, I could really relate to that as a, as an independent filmmaker making a film over the course of four years, you know? And yeah. so when there were hurdles, I really did think of Roger and his story and like, surely if he can, if he can make a watch, I can make a movie, you know? Yeah, for sure. Right. I want to finish off like how the movie finishes off, which is that you include a clip of your father. Mm -hmm. You didn't, you know, as you said, you didn't add that in until um, you actually came to editing it. It wasn't part mm -hmm. of, you know, the original plan to do so. What was the meaning behind that? And what suddenly hit you and thought, I have this footage. I want to put it in. I had always wanted to end the film with a montage of a human life, basically from conception to ah, okay. death. And I was exploring other ideas of doing that in a more generic way. Um, but when I started editing with um, Jay Griffiths, who is the wonderful writer who wrote the book, um, A Sideways Look at Time, and really describes time in a very poetic way in the film. And, and there's a part in the movie where she talks about how children um, have a different experience of time than adults. Children don't really care about time at all. They just are playing around and, and adults are like more like on a set schedule and adhere to the clock. Um, and so, it was like, well, what are we going to see visually when she's talking about children like this? And 
um, I had, you know, old Super 8 home movies of me as a child. And I started playing around with that. And then there was an epiphany at some point where, because my father was in a lot of that footage playing playing with me as a child. And there was an epiphany at that point that was just like, aha, like this can all sort of gel together. Like this can be about my father and he can sort of represent that life, that, that human life and at the end. And then I could incorporate home movie footage of my son, me with my son of myself. And so we can, so I can sort of create this montage of a life. Um, and, and then when Will Andrew talks about describing time in days rather than years, you know, it all just sort of starts to click, mm. you know, where I could incorporate that as well. Um, right. And- After having the idea, and then in the editing room, actually seeing it, was it emotional for you? Yeah, I think once, you know, when I had the epiphany, it was very exciting that, oh, I, w- I should try this. And, you know, but it's like, is it going to work? Are people going to get it? You know, and so it, 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 t- it, t- it takes a lot of like, there's too much of this. There's not enough, you know, finding the right balance to make it really work. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm really happy the film could be a tribute to my father. I, I think that's what ultimately this, I want people to take away from this film is that, you know, it may sound trite, but life is finite. We only have a certain amount of time on this planet. And I really think these watchmakers and all these people in the film have decided to do something interesting with their lives, um, create something beautiful to sharing it with the rest of the world. And I think that's what gives our lives meaning, you know, and a lot, you know. And so I want people to walk away from this film asking themselves, am I living the life that I've imagined and dreamed for myself? Mm-hmm. Am I doing what I wanna do with the time I have on this planet? And if I'm not, it's time to get going on with it, you know? Um, and, I, and I think I would love for people to walk away from, from the film wanting to- I wanting think that, to, that theme is very like uh, transparent as in very apparent, I mean when you watch the movie that yeah it, it is finite and yeah like like you said it nicely i'll say yolo <laughs> <laughs> right but oh, well, that, ends the main interview. that ends the main interview segment right. so thank you so much for you know your insights and letting us know exactly behind the scenes how the movie went down we uh, now go to the reverse round so you can shoot away well i We'll pose, you can pick which question you'd like to answer, but you- um, Okay, let me go first then. <laughs> two questions. You, like I said, fair. just pick one. One, what's your favorite movie? You, you can't pick Keeper of Time. I know that's all of your favorite movies. Um, and why, or how did you personally get interested in 
watches and horology. Okay, I'll go uh, for the movie one because yeah, my favorite movie uh, of all time is Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Uh, I love it. Actually, is um, actually continues from that theme of making most of your time. And I really love how that movie ends because I always, and it's like everybody watches that movie and has a different interpretation of the meaning because of the ending. Mm-hmm. And my, my interpretation is, you know, this guy had everything going for him. Yeah. And he decides to walk away from it to chase something he actually wants to do. You know, on, on, on paper, he could do anything and be a huge success. But okay, so he, that's good, like chasing your dream kind of thing. But there's another aspect of that, that having talent isn't enough. You have to, you know, want it. You have to like work hard for it to be a success. So those two things are so strong, like at the end. That I I think I find it very like inspirational because sometimes you think you go into a project or something you think I'm being outgunned here like there's people that you know uh, are maybe highly qualified or you know even in an interview like highly qualified or whatever but do they have your drive to go in there you know do they have that passion to really go in there because maybe that's actually the key factor you need and that film kind of basically underlines it's not about the talent it's actually what you want to do. So I love that. And I love the monologues. Oh, the monologues are amazing in that movie, you know, with, um, oh, what's his name? Rob, Robin, Robin, Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the bench and how, if you've never seen life, you know, it's again, again, about life where he, he very quickly tells you what's important in life. And it's so true but it's done in such a poetic way. And I'll never forget that line, you know, Mm. just in there. And then um, I love how that movie is also about, you know, Matt Damon finding himself. And we all go through that in life. You know, I know he has issues in the movie, but it is about what do you want to do? You know, and we asked that question and I, I still think today you ask that to many people and they can't answer you. And it's exactly like that movie. You know, he goes, I ask you a simple question and you know, you, I think you try and bullshit me or something like this, right? Like you can do all this math, but I ask you a simple question and you can't answer it, you know? And he uh, ends up storming out. And that, it's so true. You know, if you ask that directly to people, a lot of people don't know. They, they do try and BS you. Actually, yeah. they're trying to BS themselves. So that is one of my favorite um, movies. That's great. Uh, I, you've inspired me to revisit that film. And I'm thinking about that film. I'm like, this would be a good one to share with my, my, my two kids too. Um, yeah. 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 I'm a That's believer in talk. like sometimes <laughs> movies can teach you more than you could ever teach. You know, sometimes like they see a movie to get it. You know, you can try and explain things and everything. But like you say, if, it, if the cinematography the editing is it's seamless it you just absorb it in a way that i could never explain it like that yeah Mm. oh great answer love it okay i'll go next um 
when you I want to choose favorite movie but when you said favorite movie obviously you're like I can think of like 20 movies right so I'm gonna choose one that I watched recently on the plane that I was I was like secretly crying in the dark but even (laughs) though it wasn't even a sad movie but it just like really moved me um it's called King Richard so it's actually about Venus Williams and how the dad coached her so obviously when you watch the trailer you think oh it's just gonna be a movie about like her playing tennis and then you know the end right but it's the way I think the thing that really moved me was the way the dad had a plan all the way from the beginning and way before Serena Williams even played a single match was like I already told her like okay you're gonna be a legend like there's a plan for why you can't play now and that your sister has to win first, but you're actually going to be like the bigger name in the future. So everything, there was a plan and it had a lot of like positivity and um, I'm a huge belie- believer of like law of attraction. So this totally just like made everything like concrete for me, like seeing this just made me think, okay, if you have a plan and you really believe in it, it might take a long time, but you get there someday as cheesy as it sounds. Yeah. But yeah, it really moved me. Even, even with Will Smith and after the slap. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> came out at the worst time possible. I haven't seen the film yet. I've been meaning to watch it. And then uh, after he slapped Chris Rock, I was like, yeah. uh, how can I watch it's, it? I, yeah. I guess I should just watch it. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to unsee it. Like now if I watch it again, which I plan to do, I just want to see how I feel about him in the film. Does yeah. he play the dad? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I, I thought you were going to say Jiro Sushi, Long. <laughs> oh, man, that's a great movie too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm also gonna pick movie, um, but it's so difficult because it's exactly what Long said. Like, um, so I'll just answer the most recent one I've watched and I've revisited, which is uh, Braveheart. <laughs> it's so funny. Mm, we answer so such good, different though. movies. Um, <laughs> like I'm always attracted by stories and 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 history i love fiction but i love it when it's you know based on real events and i remember watching that film for the first class in um for the first time in film class um in in high school and just it was the story it was a narrative the the this this not dedication but just like urge to live and and uh, for for the country and fight for one's country um that really you know spoke not spoke to me because I didn't have to do that but it was just really touching and the love story um not to mention again the scenery shots and also the 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 soundtrack um that so it's my it's my favorite um movie as of right now but if i were to say like favorite film piece of work um i know we said movies but then i just want to digress a little bit my favorite tv show of all time is breaking bad because i think the (laughs) writing is genius and it's brilliant um like you're we're talking about editing and, and writing and whatever i think that show has one of the greatest writings in all 
of um yeah tv history and i haven't watched many but you know the ones that i have watched it's it's so good like i've re-watched that show over and over you know random episodes and um i've gotten to a point where you know someone says a line and i could not like remember <laughs> it but like muscle memory you know kind of remember what the next line comes um to be so yeah that's that's yeah it's such a great show yeah um, i don't right. i don't think the movie was that great i know there was like a huge debate mm. after it came out yeah, i still I, uh, I haven't yeah. seen it but i think the show was great until the the cartel boss got like blown up mm. remember yeah i was like what yeah, because that's okay. the arch villain, right? And then that, like yeah. by that time after he dies, it's just like all Walt. And... Okay, we just ruined it for everything. Yeah, we just ruined all those movies. <laughs> yeah. now, now I'm curious to know what watches everyone's wearing in those movies. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? Um, on Walt's birthday, Jesse gave him a Taekwara Monaco. Yeah, I told you this is Jack. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. I, I, when I saw that, I was like, "Whoa!" And you know what? I want to. I'm not sure if I'm. This is right or not, but I want to say that in Braveheart, someone was wearing a wristwatch in the film, and obviously there was not, <laughs> really not period correct. Obviously, <laughs> I'm trying. I think there was like a some sort of gaff like that. Or mm. was somebody was holding like a Pepsi can or something? I can't remember, but it was something <laughs> with Braveheart. It reminds me of Game <laughs> of Thrones with the Starbucks cup. Well, maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Right, we're going to finish off with the uh, pump push around. So, some questions straight off, like first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready, <laughs> Michael? All right. <laughs> what was the last thing you bought and loved? The last thing I bought and loved. Well, I can tell you the last thing I bought and don't love. And that is I bought these for my glasses, these these things that go on the ends that you what, what do you call retainers uh, uh, for your glasses? And they're supposed to hang from your neck so you never lose your glasses. <laughs> yeah. And I hate them because they make me look like I'm an 87-year-old man. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> I could have told you that before. As soon as you said that, I thought that's my barrier. <laughs> I really thought I could pull it off. I would be the first guy to make those cool. And guess what? <laughs> I was dead wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Next one. The last item of clothing you added to your wardrobe. The last item of clothing uh, was the clothes I bought for the film premiere. And I got um, mm. from Acme Studios, you know, this, ah. this place. Yeah. So I got a black okay. shirt, black jeans and a black sport coat. And I'd also bought these uh, Nike high tops. Mm. And I thought I looked pretty damn sharp. Yeah. <laughs> you the glasses as well. <laughs> no that would have ruined it oh my god <laughs> right I, I don't know if it was during the phase where you were trying to rock it you know like <laughs> no, no if i had wore those glasses retainers oh my god they'd have to photoshop that up okay oh right what would you say are your personal signifiers my personal signifiers explain what you mean by signifier 
so that you think identify you so you like like these these lot like the glasses. Long, you know my headphones right like if i were oh, right, right, think that's me you know uh, my glasses i had these harry potter like glasses the... they were like <laughs> i my personal signifier uh boy uh high tops i all i've always worn high top shoes and my brother can attest to this too i was like ah. always wearing like black air jordans growing up mm. um even when i wore shorts pants jeans he was like you always wore black high tops and i continue to this day to wear high tops more than not. are you really tall i'm six one yeah okay so yeah. you pull it off like i, I just look like a kid <laughs> I, mean, I look like a kid anyway but i mean like i look even more like a kid Right. um yeah i also like vans you know the slip-on vans the checkerboard ones so i don't mm. know okay um the best gift you've ever received the ooh, the best gift i ever received um boy you know what? One that stands out, I don't know if it's the best, but it's one of my favorites, is that for Father's Day, um, uh, was it last year or the year before? My, uh, the other thing I should preface this by is that I also like socks, sort of a funky <laughs> socks with different things on them. But my, my kids got me for Father's Day this pair of socks that they had made with their faces on socks. <laughs> the pattern, there's a pattern over their faces, my son and daughter. And uh, that made me laugh out loud when I opened that up. And uh, it, to this day, it's one of my favorite pairs of socks. <laughs> but then do you wear them often? It's like you're stepping on your kids' faces. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they, they, always, they always like when I wear them. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> next one. The best souvenir you've ever brought home. The best souvenir I've ever brought home. Well, I'll say this, and this is goes back to the socks again, because when I was uh, filming on the Isle of Man, we were walking around, um, I think on, a, on lunch, and in the store shop, in the souvenir shop, was a pair of Isle of Man socks. <laughs> and... <laughs> Okay. I got those and I wore those at the premiere, by the way. Oh, wow. I, I'm actually not surprised that <laughs> you thought this thing with the glasses would work now. <laughs> <laughs> you can see them, you know, I yeah. try to be cool, but I'm a real dork at heart. Yeah, like, <laughs> like one, of these, one of these questions was like, who's your star icon? But I think I'm going to give that a miss. We all know it's like an old librarian lady, right? <laughs> so, right, exactly. <laughs> next one. Um, what's an indulgence you'd never forgo cigars i love cigars oh, okay good one yeah yeah, yeah. Love them. i was talking to a friend about that just as before we got on air right and you know when you get the idea of you feel like a cigar mm-hmm. it's gonna happen <laughs> yeah yeah you, you know what i mean like you can't like it's it just stuck in your head and it's gotta happen until you get it done absolutely you'll enjoy it. No you'll enjoy it. oh yeah for me, they're they're great. They're yeah, first I, I just love them. But it, for me, I, I will smoke one alone, and it's just I get to ruminate on the end of mm. you know my day, and you know usually I will smoke them at the end of the day, and just mm. it's sort of my time to spend an hour and smoke a cigar and just have my alone time and to my thoughts and mm. um, get away from the kids. 
<laughs> yeah. So you can look at them on your socks instead. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we know that pose. You know, every cigar guy has it. You know, cigar like that, knee up, you know, foot on the end of the knee. <laughs> right, right, Just so right. you can see your socks, eh? Just so I can <laughs> see my socks. That's right. You've traveled to lots of places. Um, what's an unforgettable place you've traveled to? You know, I was just talking about this with uh, somebody the other day because he, his wife's family is from Brazil. And my wife and I did a trip to Argentina um, right before we got married. Um, but anyway, we went to the Ibazu, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Ibazu Falls which um, are these incredible waterfalls on the um, border of, I think, Argentina and Brazil. I mean, they're just massive and incredible and the hike you go around, it's breathtaking. Um, and they were featured actually in the film, The Mission with Robert De Niro. Um, but yeah, that was an un unforgettable experience seeing those waterfalls. Yeah. Mm. Okay, uh, coming up to the last few. An unforgettable meal you've eaten. Doesn't have to be because of the food. The unforgettable meal. Um, you know, one of my friends uh, got fired from his job for this really silly, crazy reason. And he was, he was sort of really down about it. And so me and there was three of us and we went to Koreatown in Manhattan and we got these uh, <laughs> Korean chicken wings, which they make, Korean chicken wings are the best. Mm. And we, this is when I still drank alcohol and we just proceeded to get completely loaded. <laughs> and- With soju? <laughs> uh, Korean beer. Mm. And then we went across the street to a karaoke place and got a got a got bottle service, and we stayed up till four in the morning and just got completely wasted and had probably one of the best times I've had in my life. But we but we all still talk about that. It was an epic night. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think like Koreatown. I think you can't have fun in Koreatown unless you're drunk. That may be true, but I will say that the chicken wings are just the best. Yeah, no, it's just every time I go to Koreatown, I I'm alert. I'm personally allergic to alcohol, so mm -hmm. um, I I drink a little bit and then I'm done. But then like like also it's like two rules: you don't go to Korea drunk uh, Koreatown unless you're drunk, and then you don't go to Koreatown alone. You know, you're always in a group, in a big group. Yeah. And and it's always, you know, somebody always does something funny. Like my friend, there's so many garbage bags by the street there. And when you get drunk, like my, my, I remember my friend stepped in the garbage bag, um, <laughs> like pile. <laughs> and, and we we're just making fun of him. And yeah, that's like one of the most vivid memories I have of New York. Um, Good one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun, Koreatown is great. Even if you just walk down that main drag, it's just like, you're right. It's just like groups of people at restaurants having a, yeah. like there's just an energy there just walking down that block, you know. Yeah. yeah. Right, last two. Um, let's see. Yeah, how about this one? The best book you've read in the past year? Best book ever. Well, I have to give a shout out to uh, Gary Steingart, who's also in the film, but his book, I have it right here, are 
our country friends. Okay. Mm. Um, you know, he, he that recently came out in the last few months. Um, I have just to say, he's first of all, he's a fantastic writer. And um, that book made me laugh out loud a lot. Um, but then it's, it's very... Um, it's very powerful and emotionally powerful at the end and, and, and quite poignant actually. Um, and he is just a pro at sort of mixing, getting that tone right. Um, so I highly recommend that book. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And the last one, what will you find always in your fridge? <laughs> seltzer, cans of seltzer. I drink probably seven cans of polar brand flavored seltzer a day. I mean, I'm always, <laughs> if that's not in the fridge, something's gone horribly wrong. What's your favorite flavor? Grapefruit and black cherry. <laughs> <laughs> Grapefruit is great. Yeah. The lemon, I'm not too, the lemon, it, it tastes like dishwashing soap sometimes to me. So I <laughs> avoid that. But uh, the other flavors, yeah. Mm. Love seltzer. I love seltzer that's super carbonated that hurts when it goes down wow. your throat. That's wow. Sort of my... Is that is that your go-to uh, beverage of like choice when you're editing on a late night? You just have to wake <laughs> up and then you're like. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's what I, I after I have my two cups of coffee in the morning, I go right to the seltzer <laughs> all day long. And the bathroom. Right. I in the bathroom because it's like you know drinking that much water <laughs> yeah okay that ends the podcast it's been a pleasure to have you on michael i hope you enjoyed it i did enjoy it I, yes i did <laughs> sorry for the hesitation i did enjoy this was a blast and i love i love the format of this and i really want to like hang out with you all in person now like let's go to koreatown I okay that means to be funny but join the queue mate <laughs> <laughs> we get that all the time okay wow come on no if we if we trust me like i think we've made so many friends especially around the new york area that if we are there we would definitely meet up with everybody if we if we go and i hope we do go yeah, yeah let's, please drag, let's drag john reardon with us yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, let's let's completely like try and one-up your career town experience oh my god <laughs> well i it, if you could geez well i would be fun regardless whether you topped it or not yeah. <laughs> yeah okay well like i said if you guys haven't seen the movie you should go and uh, it's on vimeo isn't it Michael? it's on vimeo on demand um the best way to watch it is actually to go go to the website keeperoftimemovie.com and when you mm -hmm. land on the website there's a button front and center that says watch movie mm. hit on that i'll take you straight to the vimeo site and you can purchase the film and uh, own it and watch it at uh, your convenience yeah yeah i'd really like a lot well i kind of like can't force you guys to watch it <laughs> listening but i kind of do what you want you to watch it um like i said i'm a kind of guy that has seen most of the youtube videos of anything that's watch related and you won't see this content before uh and it's all beautifully shot and i think if you are a watch guy you kind of or girl sorry you should yeah I was just, waiting just... for you to say that i was like <laughs> how can you say that in front of you <laughs> yeah a bit slow it's like 12 midnight now so yeah, yeah right, like, if you right. haven't if you want to see beautifully shot 
cinematography mm. on watches yeah and with a great story all the way through and content about the people we mentioned philip dufour uh, roger smith max booser fd jean nick manusos you know th- it's the place to go so yeah hopefully you enjoy it and thank you again michael thank, thank you. you so much thank you so much this was a, a, just a blast thank you okay cheers <laughs> all right we'll see you guys on the next one bye as always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.